any American strategy that is not sensitive to the preferences of other countries is a strategy that is going to fail. That we simply do not have today that kind of clout as we had, say, in 1945, to be able to simply write the rules of the system ex cathedra and expect that everyone will follow that. This is Asia Insight, Asia policy in a pod. From the National Bureau of Asian Research, this is Dan Um. Asia Insight is a podcast series from NBR. We interview top Asia experts to discuss key issues affecting the Indo-Pacific region, particularly with a view to informing U.S. policy and businesses. In this episode, I interviewed Dr. Ashley Tellis and Michael Wills about NBR's newly released volume, Strategic Asia 2020, U.S.-China Competition for Global Influence. We explored how we got to where we are in the U.S.-China competition, how it's playing out around the globe, and the elements that U.S. policymakers might consider as they craft a long-term strategy towards China. Let me briefly introduce our guests. Their full bios are featured in the show notes to this podcast. Dr. Ashley Tellis holds the Tata Chair for Strategic Affairs and is a Senior Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's also a counselor at NBR and the research director of the Strategic Asia Program. He was a Foreign Service Officer at the State Department and has held numerous positions, including as Senior Advisor to the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs. Michael Wills is Executive Vice President at NBR. He's previously served as Vice President for Research and Operations. He's also held the position of Director of the Strategic Asia Program, and he's co-edited nine volumes of Strategic Asia with Ashley. Now, without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Asia Insight. Ashley, Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Now, this is the third year we're doing um, a podcast interview on the Strategic Asia series. Uh, This volume's different, like every year is different. Strategic Asia itself uh, does an assessment of the evolving strategic dynamic uh, in the Indo-Pacific. Last year, we focused on um, starting with China's vision for itself and for the region and then expanding outward. This year, we're focusing on something different. Can you tell us what the focus is and why you decided on that topic? I think the focus in this year's volume was really suggested by the political realities around us, where after two decades of struggling with how to manage China, the United States finally comes around to the view that China is a strategic competitor. And that's really what has defined this administration's global policies uh, for the last three years. And so for us, I thought the most obvious consequence to explore would be to see how the international community and different countries around the world are responding to this this new reality of US-China competition. So in some ways, the decision with respect to the focus of the volume was made easy simply by the changes that occurred uh, in U.S. politics in the last three years. And so, Ashley, you open with a summary of how we got to this point in the competition between the U.S. and China. And you also highlight why it took so long for U.S. policymakers to recognize this fact. Can you go into a little bit of that? 
Sure. I think uh, we have to await a more considered judgment about how we got here. You know, once the records are opened and archives become available and so on and so forth. But I think the quick answers come in two or three ways. the United States, I think, recognized early on that China could be a strategic competitor, but was hoping to avoid uh, that outcome to the degree possible. And so for uh, at least two administrations, uh, both President Bush's administration and President Obama's administration, the focus was on engaging China in order to avert the outcome of competition while also hedging prudentially. And so that's really what animated US policy, I would argue, for at least two administrations. Uh, And the reason for that hesitation ultimately derived from the fact that the relationship with China was far more complicated than the relationship the US ever enjoyed with the Soviet Union. We were deeply intertwined with China. And that implied that a shift to competition could be potentially ruinous to the United States in absolute terms and could be quite convulsive to the international political order. And so I think a combination of these factors really pushed US policymakers to try and avoid reaching the conclusions about competition uh, for as long as possible until they, could, until they could, couldn't do otherwise. And that's really the moment where we are now, where you know, 20 years uh, into the new century, uh, the US has now finally decided to fess up to a reality which has become inescapable. And that reality is being recognized by national leaders all around the world. And this year's volume goes into a number of chapters and regions covering the globe. So of all the countries that you looked at, What's your assessment on which countries or regions have the most to gain or most to lose by this existing competition? In some ways, the two countries that have the most to gain or lose are the United States and China. Because the stakes um, for both countries are extremely high with respect to the character of the global order, with respect to um, the nature of the alliance systems, particularly for the United States, and how the international community conducts itself with, respond, with, with respect to the phenomenon of China's rise. So I think the two biggest uh, players in this game uh, still remain the United States and China, though obviously not alone. The interests of other countries are also implicated, most importantly that of our allies. Because depending on how the United States copes with China's rise, the implication for allied security and allied prosperity uh, is, extremely, is extremely significant. Let me add one more um, dimension there. Beyond allies, and the US obviously needs to maintain and, and strengthen its alliance relationships, there are other countries or regions that will have strategic significance, not just now, but one or two decades from now that are not currently US allies. And so following on what Ashley was just saying, the, the competition is, is challenging 
not just policy elites in Beijing and in Washington, but in capitals around the world. And we argue, I think, as we, we read the, the conclusions that a lot of our contributors reached this year, that the competition is enduring and long term. And once you accept that reality, you need to start thinking about how do you develop a long-term strategy so that the West will prevail in this competition. And that suggests focusing not just on your friends now, but who are other f uh, countries you need to turn into friends in order to uh, achieve your objectives in this competition. Um, both Washington and Beijing are engaged in that uh, calculus at this moment. So I think we... Um or at least, so Ashley, you, you note that the U.S. and China have the most to lose in this competition. That competition does affect countries, regions around the world. How do you think about it in terms of their possible options in responding to this global competition? I mean, one of the things that comes out very clearly uh, in this year's study is that irrespective of a country's size and location, uh, countries have a remarkable degree of agency that they can make choices that sometimes enhance the objectives of the great powers and at other times subvert them. And each country is making those decisions based on its conception of its own interests, its pre-existing ties with the United States and China, its own bilateral relationships, particularly with China, uh, to the degree that there are impediments, rivalries, so on and so forth. Uh, so countries are making choices, and we cannot simply presume that they are passive actors in this equation. And the choices they make are really going to have important feedback effects on how US-China competition evolves. And if there is any one thing that comes out of this volume is the need for sensitivity on the part of the United States to understanding the equities that other countries have in the US-China competition. Um, because a failure to understand and accommodate those equities almost guarantees that our task as US strategists uh, will become much harder. At least when we look at the evolving strategic environment now, what are some of the countries or regions that stand out to you that are more naturally um, inclined towards the United States and China? And yeah, maybe we'll just we'll start with that question. That's a good question, but <clears throat> I don't want to get pulled into kind of grading countries mm -hmm. on natural inclinations one way or another, because mm -hmm. I think every country and the political, business elite, civil society within every country mm. is reaching its own conclusions about its appropriate relationship with both the United States and China and the relative appeal that both have. Um, I think a more interesting sort of response might be which of the countries, uh, which of the countries or regions that the United States could or should focus on. Um, in this volume, we extended the frame of reference beyond the Asia-Pacific region uh, in ways that we haven't really in previous books in the series. So obviously, Northeast Asia is, has long been a, a kind of strategic priority for the United States. Um, two key US allies in Japan and, and South Korea there. Um, similarly, a very strong US relationship with Taiwan. 
um, all of which face in enormous challenges from China and enormous challenges from the growing competition between the US and China. Um, in Southeast Asia and in South Asia, you have young populations. I mean, the demographic profile suggests that these will be the engines of economic growth in one or two decades' time, growing middle classes, and in some respects, surprisingly, s strong and, and deepening democracies, um, especially in Southeast Asia, where you've seen remarkable transitions over the last 20 years. Um, so Southeast Asia, I think, for a number of region reasons, is a, an important zone of, of uh, competition here. Um, what we looked at, too, though, were, were two other regions. One is Europe, because um, Europe is, is torn, as many, country, many countries and regions are, in, in how it relates to the United States and China. Um, it is charting its own course in the world. Um, it, you know, the, the, the transatlantic alliance relationship in NATO has been under some strain in recent years, and, and the EU is evolving in ways um, you know, beyond Brexit, but, but in, in ways that are kind of forcing European decision makers to think hard about their relationships with Washington, D.C., their relationships with Moscow, and their relationships with Beijing. Um, so this is one area where um, we think there's a lot more work to be done because European decision makers um, are focused on this. And th Europe has been such a close ally of the United States for 70 years and longer that um, it's an important arena for contest, and Beijing knows this. Another important one um, is uh, the Americas themselves. Um, really, since the, the late 1800s, the United States has enjoyed um, strong dominion over the entire Western Hemisphere. Um, you know, the Monroe Doctrine was an attempt to push European colonial powers out, and the United States has, has had this centuries-long period of, of predominance in this region. Um, what we've seen in the last couple of decades is increasing Chinese investment in, in, the, in uh, South and Central America, um, increasing trade with, with uh, countries in those regions. And um, our contributor on that, uh, in that chapter was arguing that a lot of U.S. neglect of the region and sort of taking for granted our, the U.S. backyard. And so this is something, again, that I think Washington, D.C. Um, needs to pay a little bit more attention to in the decades ahead. I would like to add a couple of things to that and I agree with everything Michael has said. If you believe that US-China competition is going to be qualitatively different from other geopolitical competitions that will take place elsewhere in the world, then what you are implicitly saying is that that competition is going to ex reach the remotest expanses of the globe. That there's going to be no part of the globe that is sort of immune to the effects of US-China competition. And that imposes a certain burden on the United States to think strategically about the international system itself and its role in the international system. And it'll be harder for the United States to sort of pick areas um, and delete areas uh, from its strategic focus because that is what incipient bipolarity does it sort of makes the entire international system the subject of competition. Now, this doesn't mean that the United States cannot and should not prioritize. We have to. But we cannot afford to be neglectful of the international system writ large. 
So that's point number one. Point number two, to my mind, is the importance of the hemispheric base becomes even more critical because our ability to project power, not just in a military sense, but in an economic sense, ultimately derives from our capacity to feel secure in our own environs. And so we will not have the luxury of hermetic control, which is what we had in the hemisphere before uh, in the interwar period up to the end of the Second World War. Globalization is going to ensure that China will be present in the hemisphere. And so a strategy of attempting to keep China out is going to be futile and counterproductive. So the question then becomes, how does the United States learn the arts of becoming a good neighbor to its own physical neighbors in the hemisphere? And to the degree that it can be a better neighbor uh, to the proximate states, the better its chances of reinforcing its influence and the protection that the hemispheric base offers the United States. And, and that's a, it, it's, it's a great point because it aligns a couple of key themes. And I, I think it, it boils down to the point um, that you've mentioned that we need to be strategic um, about what we do. And it necessarily, it means we have to recognize some trade-offs. And I guess, how do you think about what we prioritize at home um, given the number of priorities we can have that help us translate into security at home, but then also into influence and power um, in the Indo-Pacific. How do you think about that question? My view on this is very simple. A long-term strategy for competing with China cannot be centered on the idea of keeping China down. Rather, it's got to be focused on keeping the United States perpetually ahead. Uh, that's the only strategy that allows opportunities for peaceful competition. If you reverse the priority, then you are going to get very quickly into hostility and unmanageable competition that will be burdensome to both countries in ways that I don't think are to our advantage. So the first order of business for the United States will be reinvesting in itself, right? But that reinvestment cannot be exclusivist. That is, we cannot say that we are going to be so inward-looking that we forget that there is an international environment uh, that is very important to our interests. So we reinvest in order to protect an order that we have built, and that's the sort of dialectical relationship between inside and outside. And any strategy that focuses on one to the neglect of the other is a strategy that will fail. And so I think what the Trump revolution, in a sense, has demonstrated is that even a rich, great power like the United States must be attentive to the consequences of international engagement for its own people. And that's paying attention to the lopsidedness of globalization the asymmetrical distribution of benefits, and so on and so forth. So there is work for us to do at home. But I think the danger is that in focusing on the remedial activity that has to be done at home, we imagine that the world will somehow take care of itself. It won't. But keeping a creative balance between our tasks of renewal at home and our obligations abroad 
will be really the central problem facing the next president, whoever that is, you know, a year or so from now. So as you mentioned, even as we in the United States are focused on this question and still trying to grapple with the scale and scope and the implications of the competition, capitals around the world are responding to this question now. What, what are some themes that you've seen in terms of how they've reacted to the competition? I think there is a diversity of responses that one can imagine. Um, the first and most important point is that there is a profound uncertainty across the international system about where this competition ends up, what forms it will take, what its limits are, and whether it can be sustained in the face of other competing realities like economic integration. And this anxiety is actually quite profound. Part of it is natural because we are just at the very first and early stages of this competition, so we don't quite know how it will evolve. But I think we need to recognize that that uncertainty is there and it's very profound. But having said that, I think already you begin to see embryonic sort of directions. One approach that you see on the part of, say, countries like Japan and India is a relief that the US has recognized that it is in a competition with China, but a certain fear that they cannot afford to sacrifice their own equities with China even as the US is engaged in this competition, and even as they want to protect their own privileged relationships with the United States. So relief on one hand that the US has finally woken up to the challenge, but a struggle to maintain a certain equilibrium in their own relationships with China. So that's one response. I think the second response from on the part of smaller countries is to avoid becoming roadkill uh, in the context of a high-octane US-China rivalry. A third response is looking for ways to exploit the competition between the two major powers for the benefit of individual countries. And you see Russia as being a very you know, sort of interesting example, which sees the competition as actually opening up greater opportunities for it to cozy up with China in order to amplify its resistance to US power. And I think a fourth response would be simply those of the bystanders who are really very small and powerless and are struggling to sort of come to terms with the new reality. But find themselves unable to quite shape it. So there's quite a diversity of responses when one looks at the totality of how this competition is impacting different parts of the globe. And just to add on to, to that, these four categories, and, and um, sort of Ashley's, I think, been able to look at the, the chapters synoptically, and, and, and you know, you see where countries sit in these four categories, but it's not uh, they're not sealed boxes. It's more like a spectrum. And so countries are hovering between those different choices. Um, elites are trying not to be um, pulled in one or another direction. And once you dig into any one country, you start to see those different interests pulling for different uh, outcomes in terms of where their country should end up. So a couple of takeaways from that. 
The first is that no country, no matter where it falls in its um, desire to avoid or exploit the, the, the deepening US-China competition, wants to be forced into a black and white choice toward one side or the other. Um, and the reason for that, I think, is that we are seeing this competition emerge and intensify under conditions that are fundamentally different from the ones that existed at the beginning of the Cold War. Given the realities of globalization, given the depth of economic integration between the United States and China, and all of the countries globally, just the, the fact of global supply chains and the fact that businesses have for 30 plus years been able to build, assuming that everyone is playing in the same marketplace by the same rules, um, once you add this element of competition, this uncertainty, this fear that you might start to sort of bifurcate the world into competing blocks, that's a choice that nobody wants to make, neither countries nor companies nor organizations. And so it's a much more complicated um, dynamic that, that we're facing now than, than strategists faced in the, in the 1940s and 1950s as the United States and the Soviet Union were gearing up for a Cold War, but that was a, that was a very different era in terms of, of building out that competition. And I think uh, uh, Michael is absolutely right. So the first thing to keep in mind is the contingency of the location of different countries in different boxes. These are not permanent. These will change based on the choices we make, the Chinese make, and elites in these countries make. Uh, second, I don't think it is in our interest uh, to move towards a world where there is bifurcation. Um, Rather, we need to look for ways in which we can exploit the patterns of integration for greater relative advantage. And so the temptation that constantly lurks to try and push the world in a direction that people think might be more familiar, which is a bifurcated world, which was the world of the Cold War, I don't think is a world that is going to yield the kinds of benefits that are good for us. So we have to accept the realities of integration and simply look for ways to make integration work for us and work to our advantage rather than to our disadvantage. So, so then I think a, th a theme that emerges from our conversation is that this is going to be a long-term strategy. And so or sorry, this is going to be a long-term competition, sure. and we need a strategy that fits a broader timeline. How does a country like the United States, with um, a de democratic system that works on shorter timelines, operate with a longer horizon, given the political realities of two, four-year, eight-year, six-year election cycles? What would you recommend to policymakers as they consider issues that may not be on their table by the time they're gone? To me, this is the biggest uncertainty that we face in the years ahead, which is can we create a domestic consensus in support of a strategy of competition that will not be destructive in the final analysis? And I say this because we are already at a point in our own country's history where there are deep domestic divides about what the US role in the world should be. 
And unless we can overcome those divides and come to some kind of a consensus domestically on what the role of the United States should be, what price we are willing to pay to sustain that role, and how we balance the obligations we have to the world at large vis-a-vis -vis the obligations we have to our own people, I don't think we will be able to sustain this competition. And to my mind, the coming election will be an important bellwether which tells us how the American people see their own vision of their country's role in the world. Uh, President Trump defined it in a particular way, encapsulated through the America First slogan. Um, whether that slogan has longevity and staying power, I think will be tested. Whether there are alternatives uh, to that slogan or to that worldview will also be tested. But to my mind, that is the one area where I'm most uncertain about. I don't know, given the transformations that have taken place in the last 30 years in American domestic politics, uh, what kind of role this country will stay committed to. And unless we have an answer to that question, everything that we talk about with respect to strategic competition will be only the views of some elites who are quite divorced from the realities that we claim to represent. We're going to blast this out over the heartland. Don't worry, Ashley. <laughs> Michael, do you want to weigh in on That's this? actually, Dan, though, a, a great point. And what's been interesting to observe during these uh, three years now of the Trump administration is um, a growing bipartisan consensus on the nature of the challenge from China within the Beltway. I mean, you see this when, when we go up and do briefings on Capitol Hill, when we go talk to people in the Department of State or Department of Defense, um, you see this shared recognition and an understanding of the, the nature of a long-term challenge. Um, those conversations, I don't think, are yet taking place sufficiently, not just in the heartland, frankly, all over the country. Um, and you, know, you can see that in, in Washington State, where you have um, local governments, um, uh, mayors, still courting investment from China, making decisions that, that absolutely make sense in the context within which they're operating, but maybe not taking into account that broader overlay of strategic competition. And so um, one of the challenges, I think, facing the United States over the next decade is how, you, how do you force that that honest conversation to happen across the country involving you know, poli political elites, involving the military, involving the business community, involving civil society, because it's only when you achieve some form of national consensus that you really have the, the foundations on which to build a long-term strategy. I think it, it took, uh, as I read it, uh, almost a decade to, uh, to reach that point during the beginning of the Cold War. You know, George Kennan in 1947 wrote a famous article, well, Cable first from Moscow and then a famous article in Foreign Affairs that described the nature of the US competition with the Soviet bloc as long term. But it really took until 1957 and the Sputnik moment for America as a whole to swing behind this idea that, that the competition required all 
all the elements of national power to be devoted to strengthening the U.S. economy domestically, changing U.S. society domestically, maintaining alliances around the world, and all under the, the, the framework that this was going to be an enduring competition that would last decades. Um, my sense from talking to and listening to people in, in parts of the business community right now is we're still short term. We're still thinking that this is a competition that you know, maybe we can kind of reach a conclusion to in a couple years or within an election cycle or after a certain uh, administration leaves office. Um, and I think we have to, to get the conversation to look beyond that and start to, to think much further ahead. One other additional point here. The conversation requires a lot of nuance and sensitivity too. Um, you know, if I look at US history, um, the, the speed with which the United States turned on a portion of its own population in the 1940s during, during World War II and took away rights from Japanese Americans um, in the context of a broad struggle um, is something that we've, we've seen happen here and we see people worrying about that now in the Chinese American community. And so the competition with China is a competition with the Communist Party state of China, the People's Republic of China. It is not a competition with Chinese civilization, with Chinese culture. And so I think this is an important element of the conversation that needs to happen, and that's that um, a recognition that um, this competition will only be won if the United States competes in accordance with its own value system. Um, because fundamentally, it's a competition about values and governance systems. Um, and the, the moment the United States walks away from its free, open, democratic traditions, it's disadvantaging, disadvantaging itself enormously in, in, the, in the competition with China. So I want to drill into that competition of the idea of winning the competition. And so if we stretch the horizon out to, say, 2050, that's an important year for a number of reasons. From a U.S. perspective, but maybe more broadly, a Western liberal international order perspective, what would a successful globe look like? We're competing around the world, or this com competition is playing out around the world. What does you know, an A-plus grade look like in 2050? I think it would have to start with the U.S. preserving its economic strength, its capacity for technological innovation, even its technological dominance, and the robustness of its liberal democracy at home. I'm, to my mind, that is the foundation. If you don't have those three elements, then it's a, the ability of the United States to shape a global order that genuinely offers the promise of freedom to others diminishes dramatically. So I come back to the whole theme of internal renewal and the importance of internal renewal. The second dimension of that successful order would be re revitalizing our partnerships which will include our allies, but will go beyond our allies. It will have to be the construction of a coalition of countries 
that supports the same worldview and vision that the U.S. has. And it will be an open order in that others can become part of it if they choose to. It's not meant to be exclusivist or exclusionary. And then third, it would be nice if there was a transformation within China, but that is beyond our capacity to control. But what would be important is that between our domestic renewal and our ability to maintain a certain desirable global order, uh, those two elements serve as constraints on China's ability to misuse its power. So if we can sort of check these boxes off, that seems to be success to my way of thinking. When we, when we think to the future, there are inevitably, inevitably going to be surprises. And uh, thinking back to the, uh, the spectrum that you laid up about how countries are responding to this, I was wondering, in this study, were there any surprises about where countries ended up in the, um, the conceptual framework that you came out with? in terms of whether they welcomed the competition, whether they're going to be roadkill, or whether they um, shied away from it? Were there any surprises in studying the countries? I mean, the extent of national agency was actually what surprised me. I thought going in that the power of the United States and China collectively is qualitatively so different from the rest of the global system that both countries and their competition would be able to leave, shall we say, deep impressions in ways that limit the autonomy and the agency of others. And I was surprised to see that even though that is true, that the US and China are qualitatively different in terms of capacities relative to others, there is enough space in the international system for countries to pursue their own interests through sort of artful strategies, uh, exploiting the opportunities that competition itself provides in many cases, um, and using it to pursue their own unique national goals. Uh, and that sort of only reinforced what was a sort of intuitive prejudice that I had going in, but becomes very clear by the time the volume is complete which is an, any American strategy that is not sensitive to the preferences of other countries is a strategy that is going to fail. That we simply do not have today that kind of clout as we had, say, in 1945, to be able to simply write the rules of the system ex cathedra and expect that everyone will fall in line. So even though the United States has enormous power and together with China represent a huge concentration of power, there is an enormous room for negotiation, for diplomacy, for persuasion. And um, anything that sort of abridges these elements, if a strategy is built on abridging these elements, I think it's a strategy that will come to grief pretty quickly. You know, again, I think there's an important historical parallel here, and it's it's a challenge for U.S. policymakers looking forward. In the 1940s, late 1940s, early 1950s, the U.S. had emerged victorious from a global struggle against Nazism in Europe and in nationalistic militarism in Japan and in the, in the Pacific. 
Um, it was 45 to 50% of the global economy at the time. It was facing an ideological foe in the Soviet Union with which it had no deep economic connections. Um, and its allies and partners were themselves recovering from the ruins of war, which had been preceded by a major economic depression. And so the United States had the ability at that time to build a global order that suited its interests. And very magnanimously, it built an order that was open and that did let allies, if they were willing to play by democratic rules um, and rules-based uh, orders, become part of the system. Um, today, you know, the United States is now less than 20% of the global economy. Uh, China, a similar amount or a larger amount in some respects. Um, there is a level of frustration globally about US unpredictability. Um, and so I think the challenge for US policymakers is to find ways to, um, you know, nuanced and sensitive ways to rebuild this global consensus and see the global order evolve in ways that other countries that want to join, as Ashley said, you know, it has to be a non-exclusionary order. Other countries need to see that their, their path to prosperity is best served by being part of a, an order that is not US dominated, but is US led. And I think that's the critical challenge um, that we're asking US strategists and more broadly US policymakers, US diplomats to grapple with. Um, how, do you, how do you have an open enough way of dealing with the rest of the world that countries are more willing to come with you on this journey as opposed to continuing to hedge and trying not to get sucked into what they might perceive as a a US dominated approach that doesn't necessarily match their interests. And so as the authors outline in this volume, there are a number of options um, for country leaders to consider. And so I'd encourage everybody to check out on www.mbr.org, the latest 2020 Strategic Asia. Ashley, Michael, thanks so much for joining the show. This has been a, a wide ranging and in-depth conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great. That's it. Great. Thank you. This podcast was edited by Simone McGuinness. Asia Insight theme music is by Laura Schwartz of Bellwether Bayou. Subscribe to Asia Insight on Podbean and Apple Podcasts. And let us know what you think about the podcast on Twitter. Tune in next time for another episode of Asia Insight.